Thank you, Greg. Um, do keep that one open in front of you, if you wouldn't mind, for a few moments as we think about these things. Page 691 in the Pew Bibles, Isaiah chapter 6, the first few verses. And the holiness of God. I hope you found that little clip helpful. Um, it's not a test. I know it's um, perhaps a bit more to think about than we sometimes have. But just a reminder of some of the depths of this subject and some of the ways it's picked up throughout the scriptures. Holy is what the angels say about God. And we find this in this glimpse into the throne room of heaven in, in Isaiah chapter 6, don't we? And you don't need to look at it now, but we find it again when the curtain of heaven is lifted in the book of Revelation. Uh, as you might remember in chapter 4, where the angels are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When the angels speak of God in the Bible, when we find them praising the Lord for who he is, that's what they say. Holy, holy, holy. But what does it mean? What does it mean to speak of the holiness of God? Uh, well, the Bible Project video helpfully makes the point for us, doesn't it, I think, that God's holiness is not just about moral goodness. It's also about his uniqueness his power and his ability to give life. Um, he is holy and he is unique. So it kind of also means his otherness, if you like. To say that God is holy is to say he's not like you and me. He is different to us. He is separate from us. He's distinct from us. He is set apart. He's like nothing else and no one else. He is the holy one. And when the curtain of heaven is pulled back, that is one of the things, perhaps the thing most of all, that stands out about God. He's utterly different from everyone else. That's why the Bible, I guess, uses so many different pictures to describe him. Because there isn't anything that we can say that's exactly what God is like. He is unique. So we're going to home in just for a few minutes uh, on one of those places in the Bible. Uh, that one that was mentioned in the video that Greg's just read to us. Uh, this place where God's holiness is on display in Isaiah's vision of the Lord in the temple in chapter 6 of his book. Um, what does Isaiah do when he sees God's holiness? It's quite obvious, really, isn't it? It's striking in that reading. He's completely undone by it, isn't he? He's terrified. Uh, that idea of approaching the sun of God's brilliance just being so glorious and yet shocking and terrifying at the same time. Isaiah aware of the danger so much that you know, he calls down these woes on himself, doesn't he? Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. As I said, we've been reflecting about different characteristics of God this term, just a desire to, to know him a little bit better and asking who he is. And as, as I said a moment ago, at times that's taken us close to him and almost kind of wrapped up in that reminder that he is a God who cares, who is with us and who loves us. And yet sometimes, like with this subject, we're just brought face to face also with just how awesome he is. When we say he's love, we get a reminder today that that doesn't mean he's kind of like a teddy bear. He's not like our mum or our dad uh, or someone else we know. To say that God is love is always in the context that he is holy as well. 
And when we think of his holiness, his separateness, if you like, his unapproachableness, we also see Isaiah in his presence and yet not destroyed. More than that, actually, in the video, it showed it beautifully, didn't it? He's made clean in the presence of God. And these, these few verses here just help us to think a little bit about some of the ways that God is holy and what it means for us. So here they are. First of all, God's holiness. Um, he is infinite. He doesn't die. And we do, but he doesn't. First one look simply says, it's one of those bits that we, we skip over if you're anything like me when you read the Bible. Isaiah says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. And perhaps that's the most obvious contrast between the Lord and us. King, I King Uzziah died. We don't even really notice the statement, do we? There's nothing to remark on, really. I mean, all the kings died. All the queens died. Everyone else in the kingdom died eventually. It comes to all of us in the end, doesn't it? We know it does. It's the, it's the what do they say? It's the, the great statistic, death and taxes. Um, it comes to everyone. It's just normal. But not the Lord. He always lives. He has always lived. He doesn't die. Um, our lives are fragile, aren't they? And we depend on many things, you know. Oxygen, water, uh, light. If we lack any of them, that's it for us after a pretty short space of time. But the Lord is, well, the word is independent. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. He is. He's alive. He doesn't need to be provided with something. He doesn't need to be served by anyone or, or helped with things that he doesn't have. Everything else in the universe is finite. It has a beginning and an end. Uh, or even if it doesn't have an end, he's given eternal souls to people, still have a beginning. But God is eternal. As Jesus says at the end of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the infinite God. Second thing here in Isaiah 6, he's reigning. He is seated and he's in control. And that's another difference between God and us. He is high and exalted, seated on a throne. Verse 1 again. I wonder, how do you feel about the responsibilities you have in your life? Just take a moment to think of the things that you are responsible for. You might think of things at home. You might think of things at work. You might think of things in your family relationships that you have. Most of us, I think, like to be responsible for a few things. Life would be strangely empty if we had no responsibilities. And it's natural to thrive when we've got something positive to do, isn't it? But sometimes we end up with too much on our plate, don't we? Have you ever felt like that? Like I just can't manage it all. There's just too many things going on. And responsibilities kind of add up and you end up feeling a bit frazzled. Is, that, is it just me? Or is it sometimes you? You know, that feeling of trying to keep plates spinning. You know, like the, um, I mean, who, who invented plate spinning is a thing. But it's, you know, running around from the poles, trying to keep them all spinning and not let one of them fall off. Life can get a little bit like that. But not for God. He has all things under his control. Um, he sustains the moon and the stars. Um, every sparrow and robin, every flower and insect, he is well aware of their movements and he provides for them. He's sitting on a throne. He's not stressed. He's not running around trying to keep stuff happening in different parts of his universe. His word is powerful. His authority is great. You need never rush or panic or worry. 
unlike me and you, is always in complete control. So second thing about God in this passage. And thirdly, he is high and lifted up. He is higher than, than we can imagine, in fact. Still in verse 1, just notice that phrase again, high and exalted or high and lifted up. And one of the ways in which the Lord's holiness, his complete difference to us, is, is often emphasised is in his highness or greatness. Again, you might be able to think of different parts of the Bible where this happens. Later on in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 55, the Lord will say to his people, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And we've seen the holiness of God, haven't we, pictured as being like the radiant goodness of the sun, only much brighter. Another helpful picture that we might use, that the Bible sometimes uses, would be of a really high mountain. Mount Everest, let's go there. That's the highest one we've got, isn't it? Uh, Mount Everest is beautiful, but again, it's a dangerous beauty, isn't it? As many climbers have found over the years. You know, and if we were taken from here and plonked in our normal springtime clothes on the top of Mount Everest, we wouldn't survive for very long. Either the cold or the lack of oxygen would get us fairly soon. And the image of a mountain as the place where God meets with his people is one which is, again, used quite often in the scriptures, isn't it? The Lord appears to his people on a mountain. And in several places, just like Everest is dangerous, the people are warned, don't come too close to the mountain, because the Lord your God is holy. Um, what other examples of God's highness are there in the Bible? One of my favourite ones is in Genesis chapter 11. There's that terrible story of the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you remember it. It's a um, that point in human history where the people could have get max out on being full of themselves and saying, we don't need God. And uh, they, they're building a city. They think they're building a city that reaches to the heavens, if you remember. That's what they're claiming. They're, they're saying, basically, look how great we are. And verse 5 of Genesis 11 says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that people were building. This tower that was so great and so huge, it was the highest thing on earth. And the Lord has to stoop to come and see what it is. And again in Psalm 2, as the kings of the earth rise up and the peoples plot against God's plans, the writer of the psalm says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord is higher than us. He's greater than us. And that could be a fearful thing if he wasn't so faithful and good. And in fact, it's something which gives us confidence. When people make pitiful attempts to declare their own greatness at God's expense, well, he bends down to see them and laughs. Psalm 2 says the Lord scoffs at them. Higher and greater than any of us can conceive. Fourthly, he's resplendent. I love this bit. We're told in Isaiah 6, we're still in verse 1, by the way, don't worry, I'm not going to do this with every verse, just relax. It says, his train, the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple. Um, have you ever been to a, to a wedding where the bride had a really long train on their dress? Um, Princess Diana, um, apparently, uh, you, some of you will remember this, I do, I was about 10, I think, at the time. She had the longest train in royal wedding history, someone's worked this out, and it was 25 feet long, although the veil attached to her tiara was hundreds of feet long and was much longer still. But imagine being at a wedding where the bride's train is so long that as she walks up the aisle, it just keeps on coming, and it just keeps on coming. 
until eventually people have to start to move to the sides because there just isn't any room in the church. People start getting exiting through the doors because the bride's train just begins to fill the whole building. That's the image that Isaiah is given here, isn't it? There's, a, there's an extravagance, a resplendence to God's presence. It just completely fills the temple, the place where he is. Again, it's unthinkably different to my presence or to your presence. And then finally, I mean, we could go on. He's unapproachable. And that's the theme of the, the video clip we watched a moment ago. This idea that his presence is actually dangerous. In verse 2, we meet these seraphim, these strange beings, as they were described there, some kind of angels. Um, and they are kind of terrifying when you read the description, aren't they? When they shout their praises, verse 3, the whole temple shakes. It's not like a boys' choir, is it? It's more like a sonic boom from a jet flying overhead. They're terrifying and strange. They've got an extra pair of wings, verse 2, that they don't use for flying. They use for covering their eyes when they're before the Lord's presence so they don't look straight at his holiness as he's seated on the throne. That awesome holiness of God, so awesome that even mighty angels cover their faces as they worship in his presence. I want to say to us this evening, it's really good to be reminded of the love of God. Um, It's also something I think we like to be reminded of, isn't it? For good reason. But we also need to know something of the holiness of God. Um, He's a God we can trust, a God we can have confidence in. And we need to recognise, if you like, his awesomeness, his differentness, as well as his intimacy. And here in Isaiah 6, we find the two things together in a really helpful way. Um, God's pure holiness and his healing love come together, don't they? As the seraph flies to Isaiah with that burning coal and purifies Isaiah's lips, searing them with the words, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And in those burning coals, we find held together the unapproachable holiness of God and the reassuring love of God that he does what is necessary to make Isaiah holy in his presence. And again, the reason I wanted to show the video was I think it shows how helpfully, um, shows in such a helpful way how uh, something something new happens here. Uh, It's not that Isaiah's uncleanness contaminates anything else in God's presence. It's that God's holiness as he reaches out to Isaiah, if you like, contaminates Isaiah and makes him whole and makes him new. Isaiah is not destroyed by contact with the coal, but he's made pure and he's made whole. And again, a helpful reminder there that points us to Jesus, who brings wholeness and cleanness to lepers, uh, to the woman who was bleeding, even to the dead who he raises from the dead, and whose own death makes his people holy. That's what he does and whose spirit is like those streams of living water. It's a great image, isn't it? We don't have time to look at the Ezekiel passage, where streams flow out of the temple of God, bringing life where there is no life, even to the Dead Sea. And then the way that Jesus uses that picture to say, my people, I will make you holy, and streams of living water, John chapter 7, will well up from within you, bringing life to the world. 
That's the gospel, basically. Uh, that we can enter the holy place because of Jesus. Again, I love what it said. It's not that we need to become holy first, then we can go into God's presence. It's that God reaches out in Jesus and makes us holy, like that burning coal to Isaiah, and says, welcome, Uh, you are my people, a holy people and a chosen people. It's not that we can just be mates with God because he's a cool guy and he likes us. It's that despite our impurity and our unholy, which cannot survive God's holiness any more than a climber in shorts and a t-shirt can survive on Everest. Despite that, Jesus gives his life. That's what we're going to remember this week, isn't it? He gives his life so that all who come to him to seek his forgiveness and his washing are made clean to enter his presence like Isaiah with the coal. That is his offer once again to all of us, to you and me this evening. Let me close with some words from Hebrews chapter 10. This is what the New Testament says about this, if you like. Hebrews 10 verse 19. Therefore, sisters and brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's what we've got now because of Jesus. We can go in with confidence, not like Isaiah covering our eyes and being fearful. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus again, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful.